0: Um, I'm glad you're here. So, so we have uh, lo- lots to discuss, and Purim is coming up. So maybe let's, um, let's let's start to get ready for Purim. So I heard a beautiful uh, I heard a beautiful um, thought uh, from uh, in the name of Rabbi uh, Eliezer Ben David. Uh, he's a rabbi in in Mexico City, and he said the following, which is that. You see, everybody knows it's it's one of the the most actually glorious mitzvahs of, of Purim, porm, um, which is that a person has to reach the, this state of not knowing. And you know, we talk about the the whole the whole idea of knowing the the prison of knowing, if you will. Um, and uh, all the time we we talk about it, just um, just how uh, just basically, the idea being that God is infinite and we're finite. I mean, that's the simplicity of it, if we just want to kind of sum it up in, in one sentence. And that we, in our sort of like uh, temerity, in our foolhardiness, you know, then subject God's infinity to our finiteness <laughs> and tell God what he can and can't do, which is silly. It's just silly. So getting beyond this state of quote-unquote knowing, and what I'm saying, I'm... I'm Please don't misunderstand me, I'm not, I'm not talking about being anti-intellectual or not thirsting and running after knowledge constantly. Of course of course, we do that. But there is this state of quote-unquote knowing, which is a, a negative state, because it blocks out the infinite. And it's not, um, it's not by chance that the, the turning point in humanity comes from when we, when we eat from the tree of knowledge, and that when we eat from the tree of knowledge, death comes into the world. And because that's the, that's the, the quote-unquote bad knowing. That's the, that's the type of knowing which limits life, which limits God, which limits our, our own uh, experience in this world. So, so one of the utterly redemptive aspects of, of Purim, which makes it just so far out, is that there's this mitzvah to get to this place beyond knowing. And um, classically, the way we get to that place is through drinking on Purim. But you can do it in different ways, um, and and so it, it would be a, a, a it would belittle it would belittle the the end goal the end result to to just kind of concentrate on the drinking. It's not it's it's not really about that. The, the, the drinking can be this wonderful vehicle toward that, but it it can also then become the point, and the whole thing just kind of tumbles into ruins. So a person has to be kind of like really aware. Interestingly, just as a side note, um, the mitzvah for d- drinking is, first of all, on wine, not on liquor. So that's one thing to keep in mind. Another thing is we have such a Saturday night mentality that a lot of people think that the, the party drinking aspect is the night of Purim. It isn't. That, that mitzvah of, of the drinking to get to that place of, of not knowing is actually done at the Suda, which is, which is in the afternoon. next day so it's a whole it's a whole another thing and and that experience of actually sitting at a table and drinking as part of a meal that already is a very different experience than just sort of carousing and and you know like you know the, the, the type of more saturday night type of kind of model of drinking so just just these are just little little asides but anyway the idea is to get to this transcendent place this place beyond knowing. So now let me return to the, or introduce the thought of the Rav, who says Who says that um, wh- what does it mean to get to the place beyond knowing? So he says, when did we know? Right? So we knew at the time that we ate from the Eitz-Hadas. So the idea, the tree of knowledge, so the idea is to get to that state before we ate from the Eitz-Hadas. Okay, so now this is that's that's where the thought ends. Now I want to sort of like go with that thought and try to fill it in a little bit more. And um, so uh, maybe he had this in mind. I don't know, but this is me talking, about, just to keep the sources straight. So there's a there's a very famous um, Gomorrah uh, in Masek to Shabbos on page 88 over there, um, where it it says that. At the time that we received the Torah at Mount Sinai, we had reached the state of Adam and Chava, Adam and Eve, before we ate from the Tree of Knowledge. So now, that's, wow, that's that's very, very helpful. It's extremely helpful. Because now, this idea is not so abstract anymore. In other words, a moment ago we said that you have to get to this place beyond knowing, and what does it mean to, when did we first know? If we want to get beyond knowing, when did we first know? When we ate from the Tree of Knowledge. So we have to get to the state before we ate from the Tree of Knowledge. OK, that sounds great, but what does that mean exactly? But now we've got a concrete reference point, which is that we got to that state, the, the, the Talmud says very clearly, we got to that state at the time that we were receiving the, the, um, the Torah, when we received the Torah. So now, if you can receive the Torah on Purim, right? then you can get to the place before we eat from the Tree of Knowledge. So a lot of it becomes the preparation for Purim. A lot of it is receiving the Torah again. Now, it's not by chance, I don't think, that it says at the end of the Megillah, there is a there's a phrase there that says that we finished receiving the Torah after the Purim experience. We actually finished receiving the Torah, and there's a lot of different explanations of what does that mean. We 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 finished receiving the Torah, so like different examples of how that's reconciled with receiving the Torah at Mount Sinai, because obviously we received it at Mount Sinai, but but the rabbis teach us that that there was an aspect of um, incompletion to the fully receiving of it, right? And that's also tied into the whole worshiping of the golden calf, because remember we kind of didn't get the tablets, because Moshe smashes them before we receive them. So there was sort of like a finishing touch to the whole receiving of the Torah that didn't take place. So that's just on a very here-and-now practical level. But on a more sort of um, philosophical level, what was missing from our receiving of the Torah that we that we received um, at Purim? So there are different answers to that. Some people say that, we fully accepted the Torah Shabal Peh, the oral law, after the Purim experience. That's that's one that's one explanation. Another explanation is that we received the Torah from a standpoint of Yira, total awe at Mount Sinai, but at Purim we finished receiving it from a standpoint of love. So that's that's another that's another idea. So, so anyway But getting back to the point, this idea that we have to return back to this place before we knew, and when did we know, when we ate from the tree of knowledge, so how do you get to that state? Well, it says that we got to that state when we received the Torah. So with that in mind, we can maybe try to understand something that Rabbi Nachman says, which is that um, he he talks about the the drinking on Purim, and he says that one can reach that state of, of not knowing through just total love. Like just loving your, your fellow Jew that you can tap into that place and rise to that place. Now I was always struck by that but not until we started learning this did I see it in a different way. In other words, if you're trying to get to that place of not knowing, of, pre, of pre-eating from the tree of knowledge, and we, we were at that state when we received the Torah. Well, what happened when we received the Torah? We were like one person with one heart. In other words, it was a place of total unity and loving. Right? That's, so, so, so that is part of the state of receiving the Torah. So, so if you want to get to that state before eating from... You see, because what happens when you actually love someone? Right? So when you love someone... You, there's, um, you're not concentrating on their flaws, you know? That's, that's the thing. It's like, when, when you really love someone, it's just sort of like it's just them. It's not sort of like, well, that's the guy who does this on one hand, but on the other hand he does that, so yeah, it's, it's all right. You know, I, I guess I can live with that. You know what I mean? So you're not really, when you're really in a place of love, you're not really like dissecting and chopping a person like an onion, you know what I mean? It's like it's like just oh there they are. There he is. There she is. Hey, come here. Right? That's it's not like like hey, most of you come here, but the rest of you can stay outside. That's not that's not that's not a love thing. You see, so so there's that that total unity, because what's, what happened when we ate from the Eitz from the tree of knowledge of good and, and, of good and bad, right? It's, remember, the Eitz that's just, that's just sort of like a shorthand. The full name is the tree of knowledge of, of, of good and bad. And remember, that's always very instructive, because what's good for you is not necessarily good for me, and what's bad for me is not necessarily bad for you. So if there's a relativistic kind of thing. And now all of a sudden everything becomes wildly subjective. Remember, before we ate from the tree of knowledge of good and bad, according to the Rambam, there was true and false. True and false is much more absolute. Mm-hmm. right? That's like a black and white kind of. Then all of a sudden everything becomes very shadowy and gray and you're projecting your th- trip on other people and they're projecting their trip on you. And everything becomes very complicated at that point. But this idea of going beyond means you're going beyond these levels of distinctions, which is this place of actually love. And remember, in Hebrew, the word for love, Ava, is the same gematria as echad, one, because you're tapping into oneness at that point. The idea of oneness is it's not dicing and slicing and, you know, everything like that. It's just like the totality of the experience. Okay. So now, let's use that as a bridge to something else. And this is um, this is something that kind of just, it hit me on Shabbos, which was like, what is going on at the Happy Minion exactly? <laughs> you know, like, what is, what is that place, you know? <laughs> so, so, you know, like, people will say, well, you know, like, oh, the davening's like, oh, I don't know, it's really long, and I don't know, you know, like... When I I once heard someone say, no, don't say shlo- shlomo, say slow mo, <laughs> like slow <laughs> slow motion. <laughs> like it's going slow over there, you know. So that's okay. That's spoken by someone who's. Those are words spoken by non-card carrying members. You know what I mean? Like they don't they don't exactly get it, you know. Which is fine. You don't have to get it. By the way, in different Hasidic courts, like Ger, for instance, Ger famous for speeding through the dominant. But speeding through the davening, why? In order to maintain kavana, so that you don't have any stray thoughts. In other words, God forbid you should think, speeding through the davening, so that we can get it over with. No, speeding through the davening, so I'm just like a bullet train, I'm just totally concentrating on the davening, and that's my attention span, now I'll move on to other mitzvahs, right? So there's lots of ways to daven, there's lots of ways to daven. But what's, what's special, it hit me, and I, I don't think I'm saying anything so deep, but it hit me as like a, a new thought. What, what I realized was the, the, what's going on at the Happy Minion, and different Shlomo minions around the world, and other minions too, but this is my direct experience, is that it's not even so much about the davening. It is obviously about the davening, obviously. But there's another dimension to it, which is that it's an experience. You're having an experience. And that, that is something very, very important. And that's that's the new thought that I'm trying to bring here, which is that, how do you bring this, this concept of oneness into your life, right? If you want to live on a Purim level, which is like so exalted, like super exalted way to live, right, because what's the whole idea of Purim? The whole idea is that you understand that God is totally present even in, in in those aspects of your life where He seems hidden. He's completely and totally revealed even when He seems hidden. And what is exile? Exile is... This is why Purim is one of these holidays. Purim and Hanukkah are basically the two holidays that the two medicines that, that the rabbis, the sages, prescribe for us to survive through the exile. Right? So... What is exile? Exile is not feeling God. Exile is is just like, where is he? Right? And so one of the prescriptions to, 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 so that the soul can thrive in that environment is porn. Right? Vitamin P. Right? Which is Which is this idea that God is here even when he's hidden. Very much here. And then when you read the story and you read the commentaries and everything like that, you realize, wow! Wow, and then when you get to that more exalted state that comes through the celebration of it, then you realize, ah, oh, it's, it's happening right now. It's like it's here, it's happening right now. You know, Adam, uh, Adam Silver, Brother Adam, like the greatest, the highest, right? He, I'm not giving over his full thought, but I just want to give one part of it. He, he said something very fascinating to me because I've talked about earlier, I don't know, it was a long time ago, but I've talked about the whole Star Wars kind of thing. And by what I mean by that is that, you know, there are people who are like, say, super into Star Wars, and and for for good reason, by the way, because you know, as people, um, as people sort of as as society abandons um, classic religious teaching, right? And people grow up. Everybody intuitively understands that there's a difference between good and bad, and or good and evil, or however you want to say. Like, people intuitively understand that because we have souls. We know that, right? But but a person also needs an education because because you, you have to think like, okay, then you have to take that as a premise and then you have to think like, think about what the Talmud is. Remember, you read one page of the Talmud a day, it takes you seven years to get through it, right? You've got, and then all the Torah books and everything like that, you you take that as a premise, good and evil, then you have to take that 10,000 steps forward. <laughs> like, who can do that? Who can do that just on their own while they're riding the subway? Who can then take that thought and then take, take 10,000 or 100,000 steps forward? You, you can't do it on your own. That, that's silliness. That's silliness. There's a collective wisdom of thousands of years concentrating on this thought, developing these thoughts. Right? So, so we have basically you know, generations now of total blank slates that just they intuitively understand good and evil, but they haven't been educated in terms of what is what does that mean exactly? How does that manifest itself in this world where there is a God? How can there be evil in a world where there is only one power, and it's God, and He's good? How can evil even exist? Okay, all well, these things. We talk about these things, you know. But we, we have answers. We have concrete... Very logical, very satisfying answers for all of these questions, right? But but to the person who doesn't know anything about that, you see Darth Vader in black and Luke Skywalker in white and they're fighting each other and good is going to win and it's intensely satisfying. It's intensely satisfying, right? To see it play out because it's an education. Okay, so now what if I were to tell you that all of this actually like the greatest, imagine someone who's like into this. What could be the greatest thing that you could ever tell a person who's into this? You are a Jedi warrior. And the fight is actually going on. And it's not a movie. It's real. And it's happening. And the mitzvah and the Torahs are, the Torah and the mitzvahs are your lightsaber. (laughs) And actually, something is going to happen. There's going to be this massive transformation in this world. And it's going to be because of what you're doing and what your holy ancestors, who passed these tools on to you, have been doing and dying for and living for. And then all of a sudden, wow, it's all coming alive. It's amazing. Okay, so let me tell you what Adam said. So he says that... that, Let's go back to the Star Wars idea now. So... He says that a lot of people, what happens is, is that they they, they, they they grow up, right, in the, in the, in the bad sense of, the, of growing up, and then they don't want to, they can't really enjoy the films anymore because they're just kid stuff, so now they want to, you know, they want to study, they want to take classes about it, you know what I mean? It's sort of like they want to look in the, like, oh, here's a published thing of, or let's, here's an interview with George Lucas, or they sort of become academics. And and so you actually see that in different strains of religion as well, where all of a sudden the practice doesn't become the core of it anymore, but sort of like the academics surrounding it, and the critical, quote-unquote, critical thinking, right, which is, you know, in heavy quotation marks, the critical thinking around it becomes the experience because they've sort of, so to speak, can't experience it anymore, right? But what's the, what's the Torah approach? The Torah approach is that, wait a second, if there's a world, that means there's a God. Because imagine you're in a dark room or in a sealed room without any windows. And someone closes the door and the lights are on and someone shuts off the light. It goes from light to complete darkness. God, any moment he wants to, can switch off the light switch, so to speak, and the entire universe disappears. Right? It's all... Like, so... So, so. the fact that there is a world at all means there is a God. (laughs) Because what's keeping the world going? Just to say, well, it's just there. You see... You see, the the ancient Greeks said, oh, well, there always was a world. But wait, I thought you guys were supposed to be smart. (laughs) (laughs) That's your answer? There just always was a world? Well, that that requires at least as much belief as there is a creator to the world. And the idea that there is a creator to the world is far more logical than there always was a world, so how is what you're saying any different in terms of rationality better than what I'm saying? And my is more rational than yours since they both require belief anyway. So so it's this it's this sense that that one has to continue to be able to experience it. And I think that's the great milo so to speak, the great the great benefit, the great thing that, that Rip Shlomo sort of created in terms of this type of davening. And it's just Hasidic davening, basically, but he put his own kind of music to it and, and, you know, created his own special brand to it. But, I mean, it's going back to, you know, you know, throughout history. You know, this idea of dancing and singing and, 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 and but, the, but the point is here is the experiential thing. It's the experiential aspect of it. And I actually saw Rabbi Ari Kaplan, there's a, there, there's a couple of YouTube videos with him being interviewed, You know, which blew my mind because I was like, wow, like, oh, there he is. That's him, wow, you know? And he, he said, what is mysticism? Like, we talk about Jewish mysticism, you know? Like, or even just mysticism in general. He, and he defined it so utterly beautifully and simply, like he does with all of his writing. He said, what is Jewish mysticism? It's, it, a mystic is experiencing God. See, in other words, we have to understand that there's two categories. That there's learning and there's experiencing. And, and most of the world, the, the, who are the people who are completely alienated? Who are the people who are cut off from their, their own souls? It's the people who are, who are learning and who aren't experiencing Right, that's why uh, a Shabbos meal is so important. Right, because now it's you're you have an experience. Right, or if you can bring it to the davening, that's a great thing. You have an you're you're having an experience. Right, so the ultimate experience, on by design by design, was the receiving of the Torah at Mount Sinai. Right? You know, you're in the middle of the desert, and then all of a sudden, like the whole mountain is catching on fire, and you're seeing sounds and hearing colors, and your soul is literally flying out of your body, and there's a tremendous earthquake, and there's a huge chauffeur blast that just keeps on going, and flowers are springing up, you know, and it's. This was this was amazing. This was amazing. But it, it the, the point was to show the totality of God's saturation of this world. Right? In other words. You know, and I, I I always I always bring it up, but I'm gonna just add a little twist to it right now. See, now we're in the month of Adar. Adar, the mazel of Adar, or, or to translate, the zodiac sign of Adar, is, is the fish, which is very, it's very deep, because the idea is that the, the fish is completely immersed in water, right? But I, I have a, something that I always love to say. I once imagined a conversation between two fish, and one fish says to the other, do you believe in water? And the other fish says, you know, I don't know if I believe in water. My grandfather was very religious. He believed in water. (laughs) Right? So what's the joke? The joke is that the only thing going on is water. (laughs) But because they're so completely immersed in it, they don't see it. Now, think about this now. Think about how absolutely, 100%, this relates to Adar. Because if you think of the months, if you think of the months as like a ladder right now, and... The first month of the year is Nisan. That's the highest month, right? Right? That Nisan means has the word nasan. it means the month of miracles. And of, of course as we always say that the the arrangement of the Yud K Vav K there's different permutations for all 12 months. But there's no there's no moving around. In other words one of the 12 has to be Yud K Vav K. In other words a straight spelling. That's Nisan. Because Nisan Nase, miracles, it's clarity. That's at the top. The very bottom has to be the one that's furthest away. That's Adar. That's the 12th month of the year. That's Purim. That's all about Hashem manifesting Himself when we think He's most hidden. Now, isn't it interesting? Now, let's revisit the the mazel, the Zodiac sign. That it's fish. Because fish in water... It looks like there's no water there. It looks like there's absolutely nothing there. And yet the only thing there is God. The only thing there is water. It's also interesting that this is the the month that Moshe Rabbeinu lived and died. So lived, okay, great. I get lived because what does the Gemara say? That wherever you see it talking about water, we're talking about Torah. So Moshe brought down the Torah. So it would make sense that Moshe's whole existence, right, in terms of on an astrological level, would be completely surrounded by Torah, right? Water, Torah, right? But on the other hand, so it's totally revealed. On the other hand, though, if you, if you don't have an education, if your eyes have not been opened, then what do you see? You see that Adar is the month that Moshe died because you can't see anything because all you experience is hiddenness. All you experience is Adar as the 12th month of the year, as the one furthest away from the light, as the fish who looks around and doesn't know whether he believes in water or not. In other words, so so it's just it's it's very it's very salient to our lives because there's a direct parallel between Moshe who brought down the Torah and our own experiences in this world, which is that if your eyes are open, you see that you're surrounded like a fish in water by water, which is Torah. That's Moshe being born in Adar. Right? If not, you're like the fish who goes, do you believe in water? I don't know if I believe in water. Because God is hiding in plain sight. (laughs) You can't even see him as he's right in front of you. That's Moshe dying in Adar. So it's, it's all, everything is going on at the same time. It's all worlds within worlds within worlds within worlds. It's just a question of where are you at? What, what life, what experience are you choosing to have? And as we've been talking about, you will choose to have an experience, whether you're constantly choosing it, or whether it's, like in other words, like I thought one time, are you living life? Or is life living you? Are you living life? Or is life living you? What's the difference? The difference is, is that either way you're going to go through it. But you can actually set your mind to how you want to perceive it. And this takes some work. It's not just like you say, okay, I'm going to see the good. And then you go and you start complaining the rest of the day. That's, that, that doesn't work. That doesn't work. You, you have to... You have to dig yourself into that mindset. And it's a, it's, a daily, it's a daily thing until one conditions their mind. you know. And then maybe they won't ever even fully get there, but they'll get way better than they had been. <coughs> I remember when I first started reading Rabbi Nachman and I said, okay, I'm going to concentrate on the good. I, I remember driving my father crazy. I mean, honestly, honestly, he was like, he was upset. He was upset. Because he would say things that were like normal things. He was an intelligent man. Normal things. And I would go, but maybe, you know, and I try to give a positive spin on it. Mm -hmm. And it was like, he was like, what are you doing? What are you doing? Mm -hmm. And I, but I determined, I determined, hopefully I'm less obnoxious at this point. You know, because at a certain point, you know, you can kind of get, you can chill out in terms of how you do it, right? But there is a process where a person has to dig themselves out of a hole by saying, I'm just going to see the good. I am only going to see the good. You see, because, because that's actually what it takes. See, like the, the Rambam, remember, now we're talking about the, our classic rationalist. The Rambam says, if you want to change a mita, if you want to change a personality trait, you have to go to the opposite extreme, and then you can get, I mean, to the middle. Yeah, then you can, then you can become well adjusted. But you can't just you can't just get there. Status quo. It it, it won't. It's not gonna. It's not gonna happen for you, because thinking is very habitual, and there's certain modes of thinking that's taken me literally, I'm still working on them after decades. So no one should think that this is easy. You know, I think that this is one of the great disservices that I um, feel in, in, in many of the Torah books that I've read, at least a lot of the English translations, which have all been fantastic, and I'm hugely, hugely grateful for all of them. But, but I don't think anyone, that it was sufficiently impressed upon me how difficult it is. Especially when it comes to re, remapping your thinking, like how, how much work that actually takes. So I I, I I I say it not to scare anyone off. I say it so that people who want to do it shouldn't be um, discouraged unnecessarily. Because you know if you're going to take on a, a Ph.D. in life, you don't you don't show up for a quiz one day and then they hand you a Ph.D. It doesn't happen that way, you, 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 actually have to, you actually have to go through it, right? So, so know what you're taking on, if, if you want to take this on. And I wholly recommend that you take it on, because it's sort of like, you know, why put it around in a golf cart on the freeway for the rest of your life, when someone can be handing you the keys to a Ferrari, but you've got to earn the Ferrari and you don't have to pay a penny by the way it's free but you 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 have to understand how absolutely wild life is you know so I was thinking that one thing I don't know it just flashed on me to, to this morning I I don't know if I'll ever do it but I'll just share the idea anyway I thought it might be an interesting thing if as part of a presentation if you sort of like put on maybe even eventually you'll build to a a 360 experience right let's say you you're surrounded by screens but let's start with one screen on one screen you have a very complicated uh, mathematical formula right like you know those type of Einstein type things a full blackboard and you just ask people to look at it for a while and maybe even meditate on it and to try to understand it and no one will be able to understand but that's the point that's what i'm getting at and then you show a very complicated you know um series of from a from a chemistry textbook with all the molecular kind of things which is a similar experience and then maybe you show like a a blood cell like a like a dna kind of thing and then you know with the proper music and the proper lighting and everything like that and then you can build to galaxies and things like this and to create an experience of not knowing mm-hmm. and, and, of, and of wonder, which could be done because you, know, you could probably spend an hour on, on um, Bing or Google Images and, and assemble a slideshow like this. I don't, I don't think it would be very hard to select these shots. And then you could bring it to a more natural setting. Then you can go to something like the Grand Canyon. Then you could go to a baby, right? Then you could go to just like your work desk. I mean, that might be a, a, an amazing way to to like end it. You know what I mean? In other words, you take it to the most grounded, mundane place at the end. So that the idea being that you bring all the sense of wonder, right, to the most mundane. Okay, have a great week. Wow. Now for some questions and answers. <laughs> is, there a, is there an aspect of knowing in the not knowing? Oh, it's good. Well, yeah, yeah, but that's a negative thing. So, the, so, so one per, a person can get to a place of not knowing, and then at that point they go, "This is so great! I not know now." <laughs> but that, at that point you know <laughs> right so now you have to experience it anew but this is a very real thing and Rabbi Nachman talks about this he says that at each level of not uh, at each, each level of knowing one has to not know again mm. see because the thing is, is that at the moment that you attain information and knowledge at that point you're sort of whisked out of the world of not knowing, often. And then you know. So then you have to re-experience and rediscover not knowing from the standpoint of newly knowing. So Reb Shlomo gave a fence. So how do you combine them? How do you get it out of that trap of going back and forth and back and forth? So Reb Shlomo um, gave a brilliant, brilliant uh, example of how to do this, which is, he says, you have to treat each new piece of information that you receive as one piece in a like a jigsaw puzzle where you don't have any of the other pieces. So that every time you learn something new, you're handing one piece of a puzzle, so you're getting something new, but simultaneously you're realizing, this connects with hundreds of other things that I don't have. So you're, you're learning and, 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 and re-becoming humble at the same time. So this is a very great kavana to have and can be an an escape route out of out of out of this trap. I um so this aspect of not knowing um, which you're connecting to Amuna is 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 very good because Rabbi Shlomo said a, a different time he says that that faith is knowing on a soul level. So so Amuna is is this concept of knowing but it's a it's an intuitive knowing and 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 from that from that comes um, a, a very liberating kind of experience because you you we don't have to have the answer to everything you know I remember I remember like and I was one of these people like very much so which was that uh, what's gonna happen is our are we going to get the deal? Or are we going to not going to get the deal? Or is it, are they going to say yes? Are they going to like the script? Or are they not going to like the script? Or are we going to are we going to get that meeting? Or are we not going to get that meeting? You know, and it's sort of like, and my partner at the time would look at me, and it would frustrate me so much. He would go like this: I don't know, and I'd be like, you know, there was for me there was so much joy in like debating it and discussing it and everything like that. And he was depriving me of all this. Like, I, that wasn't my insight at the time, but that's how I felt. Like. And now I realize that he really was coming from a very wise place. It took me many years to realize. And, and then I became that person, you know, which was like, you know, people you know, occasionally will ask me questions like that. And I'm going, I don't know. And it's like, it's, it's, for me, it's probably wholly unsatisfying for the other person. But for me, it's like, wonderful. I don't know. I don't. We'll see. We'll find out, and that's it. And if if, if you believe that you will see and we'll find out by a God who loves us, and who from a God who's good, then it's okay. You it doesn't have to be this um. There doesn't have to be a level of compulsiveness to needing to know. You see, and and that's that's amuna is a is a, is a liberation from that really.
1: Of the faith, I always understood. I always felt like I understand Hashem's ways. If I didn't understand it, I'd be like, okay, intuitively, why is this happening? I got it. Okay. And then I was going to Rebbe Shemin um two weeks ago to his kegber, and I, on my way, I was like, I'm going so I can understand Hashem's ways. That's my intention. I'm going to such a holy person that really is so connected to Hashem's ways. Sure. I want to know Hashem's ways. And the answer I got from there is like, there is no such a thing as knowing. <laughs> I'm like,
0: oh! <laughs> Until now I knew new ways. Now I don't know anything anymore. <laughs> yeah, but listen, that was a gift. You got a big gift there. That was that was totally worth the trip. <laughs> um, in terms of um, challenges, when yeah. the uh, the Itza is coming at you in the, yeah. in the same way yeah. several times, or yeah. even in kind of. Certain types of resistance that you have to do certain things challenges both, I guess, in the material world and in the spiritual world. Is that like a compass that tells us where we need to do our greatest tikkun? In other words, is there always an alignment between the greater challenge and that's like where? We yeah, well, to they, the say, next level? they say they I, say, and I, I I heard it once explained it like this. I thought it was very interesting, which is that you know we believe in reincarnation. We believe we've been here many times, and. I don't have a source for this, but this is the way it was explained to me was that the that the things that are easier easier for us to do, different mitzvahs and things like that that are easy easier for us to do, we actually fixed in previous lifetimes, and that the things that are harder for us to do, and I'm talking about now more like um in terms of mitzvah per- performance right now, you know and 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 things like that, like um that those are things that that's why we're here. For for so in other words, to the extent that something is very difficult for us, it it could be that that is why we're here because that it is difficult because by virtue of the fact that it hasn't been fixed yet. You know, so it's a it's a very sort of like lofty perspective, and it and and in in a in a weird way, it can make you if you sort of like cultivate that thought in the right way, it can make you sort of like it can endear you to the more difficult aspects because you can go, oh, no, 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 wait a second. If this is why I'm here, let me actually just prioritize that. Let me just really think about that. How can I, how can I approach this in a way that's not reactive or just like, this is hard. Like, how can I just take five steps back and just like, just think about this in a new way? Because if this is actually why I'm here, like, I have to really think about this and pay attention to it. You know what I mean? And, 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 and that way, again, the idea, the key phrase that I'm using is that to have the challenge be endeared to you. Because one of the, one of the um, uh, tools of the yetsahara is that, you know, if we hate it and want to avoid it and everything like that, then that's an insurance policy that will never address it sufficiently. Right? Like, how can you learn a chemistry textbook if every time someone puts it on the table, you instinctively push it off the table? You'll never learn that textbook. But if you say, you know what? You were put on this earth to learn chemistry. The next time someone puts the chemistry textbook on the table, you'll go, okay, I'm going to read. I'm not even going to read the first line. I'm just going to open up the cover (laughs) I'm going to sit for a minute, I'm going to count to 60, I'm going to close it, and then I'm going to like dance that I even got that far. <laughs> you know what I mean? Anyone who were to really approach it in that way will get through the chemistry textbook. Wow.
1: I a class from uh, Rabbi Akiva Tatz, yeah. and he was saying that uh, the whole poem experience, it connects with, with Amalek. How Haman is a descendant of Amalek, and Amalek and Safek, which is the word for doubt, have the same gamatria, And when you're under this intense pressure of uncertainty, either you can fall into the grip of doubt and you know, uncertainty in that way, and, and what I'm thinking is, is that you might have the same information in both situations where you don't know what's going to happen. In one way, you could fall into doubt and lose hope. In the other way, you could fall into another category. Same information, but you're hopeful and that the result is going to be good.
0: Right, the doubt is, is actually is another way of accessing a muna, because a muna, what are the categories that we have faith in? Things that we don't know 100%. Now, you could, on the negative side of the spectrum, you could call that doubt. On the positive side of the same spectrum, it's faith. So, so there's a real relationship between... Yeah. So you, to sublimate or to elevate doubt is to turn it into faith. Right, and that is that. That I think that is the, the challenge, right? And uh, yeah. So uncertainty is the good side of that, not knowing. Well, not knowing would be the spectrum. So the negative end of the pole would be doubt, and the mm-hmm. positive end of the spectrum of not knowing would be faith. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay, this disappointed question. If things overall are so good why is it so difficult for, let's say, me to perceive it that way?
0: Right. That's your challenge. That is That is that that is the hand you've been dealt. That's the hand you've been dealt. Mm-hmm. Now the question is, okay, now within that paradigm, how can I just do the best possible version of that for me?
1: Right, but even before my name was brought up, we right. were still... Talking about what a challenge in general. Yes. It is. Yes. So, why, why, why is it such a challenge to perceive something that is
0: right, right? So that's the that's the whole concept of free choice. So God created this world with free choice, meaning to say that He He is here. He is already all of these things. And then he puts it into our power to perceive it or not. And so this is the glory of a human being in that we have this ability to actually to interact and and to make choices. But in order to make a choice, there has to be a level of concealment. I see. Oh. And so that's that that's. Yeah, good. Because
1: I, I do remember yeah. you at a different point saying that yeah. this outlook is yeah. a sophisticated outlook. It's not something that a well, simple person would come to the table with and a right. more complex person would mess up.
0: Yeah. You told I mean, me that
1: it was the other way around actually.
0: What, what I mean what I mean is it's the product of One has to be educated. One has to be educated. Mm-hmm. And so when I say sophisticated, it would be sophisticated for someone to arrive on this on their own.
1: I see. You know? The, the part two of this question is that one of the things I have always liked about our tradition is, and, and this all culminates on, let's say, Tisha B'av, is that we acknowledge that there's terrible things. Yes. So how do the, I mean, I know we love our paradoxes, but how do those two, ideas reconcile that there are terrible things yes. and yet it's all good i, I right. hate that modern right. day usage of right. that expression it's right. all good but you know what
0: I mean. right so you know it says it says in gomorrah i think it's the Gamor gomorrah i believe that um the rabbis asked this question and the way they phrase it is this that if, if god is good and everything is ultimately good how is it possible that we have a brocha over bad news? Because it shouldn't exist, because you're saying there is no such thing as bad news. You, the rabbis, right? Us, the religion, Torah itself, is saying there is no bad. So how can you... Why is there a blessing for bad news? And they say, because, because at this stage, in terms of the evolution of the world, we still have our humanity... Right, which is which is a beautiful thing. Our humanity on some level is a beautiful thing. But on the on the on the other hand, our humanity is also this, you know, like Rabbi Freeman referred to human beings the other day as meatballs with eyes. You know? <laughs> like, you know, on the other hand, our humanity is this meat suit which is definitely desensitizing us to what's going on. But the but the Torah is very coveted, it it, it honors and, and is very sensitive to, to our humanity, and says that at this stage, in terms of the evolution of the world, we still experience pain, and as such, we still need a blessing over bad news, even if it is ultimately good. At this stage, in terms of our development, we have to... Be sensitive to the fact that we can't always get to that place.
1: I mean, I'll be honest yeah. with you. This is a yeah. statement, not a question. But yeah. this challenge yeah. of seeing things that way, yeah. it's not a reason that I'm doing this. It's the reason that I'm doing
0: yeah. this. But that's good. I mean, that to me, that's, that's, that's someone who's holding on to the ropes of life with all their might and mm-hmm. is just not letting go. Because, you know... And by the way, the, the, these ropes of life, this is called truth. You know? And you, you're doing the right thing. You're doing the right thing.